Welcome to the Renegade Disciple Podcast, where we use Christian theology to try to make sense of what the hell is going on in this world around us, and popular culture, especially horror movies, to try to cope with whatever the hell this is going on around us. I'm your fellow traveler David Dickey, semi-professional theologian and lifelong horror movie fiend. This is our Serious Issue Deep Dive for the month of April, our first one of these for the show, so I'm pretty excited. Like I said on the Sunday Update, Today we're going to be talking about what is going on around our country and around our world when it comes to the rights of LGBTQ plus folks, especially the moral panic over the trans community, and what warning bells should be blaring in our ears for anyone who's a student of history and theology. While working on this topic, I decided to split the conversation into two parts because there's a deeply personal autobiographical angle to it that I feel I need to share with y'all. So this week, we're going to focus on the issue at hand and establish the high stakes of the current situation we are facing related to it. Then next week, I'll post part two where I'll talk about my own story related to this topic. But first, remember to rate, review, subscribe, like, share, post about, or whatever it is you do to give feedback on your preferred podcast platform about the shows you're listening to, and to share it with others across social media because that will do wonders for our show. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, Spoutable, Instagram as The Renegade Disciple with the same cover art as the show, and you can send me your questions or suggestions directly by emailing renegadediscipplepodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's renegadediscipplepodcast at gmail.com. So let's dive in, shall we? I guess I should start by giving some background on why I chose this topic for our first episode. Last year I got to do a super exciting project that involved researching the work of René Girard, especially his book The Scapegoat. Girard was a 20th century French philosopher, literary critic, historian, and social scientist. The wiki page uses the term polymath, and that's a fairly accurate description. His contributions around the notion of desire made him the founder of mimetic theory, which has come to be fundamental in understanding human nature and social interactions and the way we express ourselves in art and religion. Scholars still use the lens of his mimetic theory to better understand human history, civilization, culture, and religion, including the stories found in the Bible. A great starting point if you're more interested in seeing what happens when you apply his mimetic theory to the Bible, I would uh, highly recommend is a book by James G. Williams, The Bible, Violence, and the Sacred, Liberation from the Myth of Sanctioned Violence. Like I said, for this project, though, I was focused on his scapegoat theory, an extension of his work on mimesis. And as soon as I started reading The Scapegoat, I had this visceral reaction deep in my gut that the things he wrote about in that book analyzing cycles of persecution throughout history and literature were hitting a little too close to home. Since that moment early last year, this concern has not left me. In fact, if anything, it is increasing the more I watch the news and wrestle with our current cultural and political climate. It's become almost like a Holy Spirit conviction thing for me. It won't go away. It gnaws at the back of my mind each night as I try to sleep and it dominates my thoughts each day. It's what God's laying on my heart in this season to share with the world and a message to get out there because I truly believe we are witnessing the earliest stages of what will be a full-on persecution of LGBTQ plus folks in our midst, beginning with the people who are transgender. I'm honestly scared to death over the rhetoric and actions I'm seeing all around me. 
I'm scared for the trans kids who are already having to live in fear and isolation and who more than any other subset of our society already have felt like death was a better choice than continuing to struggle in this world that denies their basic humanity. I'm scared for those of us who are allies because I already see the ire of the right turning on anyone who dares to challenge their positions or to stand against them in what they're trying to do. These are increasingly dangerous times and I can't sit back and do nothing. I feel like I can name what's happening here, so this is what I'm doing, naming what is happening and putting it out as a warning, hopefully before it's too late. And that's obviously why this is my first topic for a deep dive on the podcast. In some ways, this was the top reason for starting this podcast in the first place, this idea that keeps gnawing on the back of my mind, to find a way to get these thoughts out to y'all as quickly as possible because I feel like it's that important. So let's begin by assessing the current landscape and why it's so concerning. June 26, 2015 was perhaps the landmark day for the advancement of LGBTQ plus equality in the United States. If you have living memory of that day, you probably remember where you were and when the news broke. That was the day the Supreme Court's ruling on Obergfell versus Hodges, which found state laws prohibiting queer couples from being married, violated the Constitution's principle of equal protection under the law, and thus, with the stroke of a pen, made legal marriage available to all couples in all states. With that, the legal rights that come along with marriage related to taxes, shared finances, inheritance, insurance coverage, the ability to make decisions for an ill spouse, etc., were finally available to all Americans who choose to marry. This came five years after the repeal of the military's policy of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2010, which finally allowed queer Americans to openly serve their country in the military without having to keep essential parts of their identity secret. In the same time as these legal moves, Major religious bodies were moving further down the road of being open and affirming of the queer community and even endorsing LGBTQ plus ordination as clergy, especially among the traditionally mainline Christian denominations. Coupled with the broad growing support of queer rights, all of this meant that by the end of the Obama administration, it seemed we were culturally turning a corner. Even the celebration of Pride in June had become a mainstream thing in American life and culture that was broadly participated in, with parades in cities across the country, even in deeply red states, and broadly embraced from the corporate world to the dinner table. However, as is typically the case, Great advancement often spurs great pushback. The first wave of this came with the slew of cases citing freedom of religion as sufficient reasons to continue to discriminate against queer couples in business and employment practices. You're probably most familiar with bakeries, restaurants, photographers, etc. seeking legal protection to refuse to do business with the queer community, especially when it comes to serving their weddings. After upholding the broad support of marriage rights in 2017's Pavin v. Smith, such discriminatory practices against queer married couples were upheld in the 2018 Colorado Bakery case and seem to be viewed favorably in the current case, also out of Colorado before the court, brought by an allegedly Christian web designer who feels she needs to be protected from having to make websites for queer couples. In recent years, we have seen numerous religious institutions terminate employees who marry their same-sex partners for cause under the guise of violating their institution's statements of belief. Here in Indiana, there was a famous incident involving a longtime school counselor being fired from one of our local Catholic high schools under such reasoning, and despite her attempts at seeking justice over such treatment, the courts have consistently sided with the institution doing the discriminating over the rights of the individual employee. 
Corporate liberty seems to trump personal liberty in modern America every time. Similar religious liberty fights have taken place over whether religious companies have to provide abortion access or even contraception access in their company insurance policies, with the courts also largely siding with the discriminators over the individuals in those cases. Currently, this religious liberty fight has been shifting to the question of whether such discriminatory institutions, especially religious schools, should still qualify for federal funding and assistance while engaging in such discriminatory practices. On so many issues, religious liberty has become the Trojan horse for those on the right to resist the cultural changes we experienced as a society in the last few decades and to protect their right to exclude based on whatever they choose to believe. Like those who fought against civil rights 60 years ago, they will exhaust every avenue possible to try to refuse to accept those they've deemed unacceptable. And they will lash out at anyone who dares challenge their legal, moral, or religious reasoning. Lately, this pushback has gone a disturbing step further with an even narrower, more specific target, the transgender community. Fear-mongering about the trans community has long existed, but as rights and acceptance have increased, so has the incendiary rhetoric and legal response. On the government side of things, this began in earnest during the last administration, when that president who shall not be named banned transgendered persons from serving in the military with a tweet and supported local movements to ostracize and ban transgender athletes in schools. Hyperbolic hypotheticals about supposed men who decide they are women trying to use women's restrooms and trans athletes having unfair advantages in competition spread like wildfire and merged with popular conspiracies around child predator rings among the elite and intentional sexualization of youth by left-leaning educators to elicit a full-blown moral panic. Today, that panic has fully turned its gaze towards transgender medical treatments for underage individuals who are coming to grips with their identities, seeking to overrule the judgment of the children themselves, their parents, and the medical professionals who work with them. The political groups behind this move have already been successful in overruling expert medical opinion when it comes to abortion, so this is their new target when it comes to legislating what goes on between people and their doctors. Child abuse is now on the table for parents, doctors, teachers, and clergy who accept, affirm, and work for what's best for the children under their care. These political and judicial activists are emboldened by their recent successes to go after targets they have long wanted to be able to go after. Chief among these are drag shows, which have become a popular and thriving subculture in the queer community for decades. They're now going after them under hyped-up accusations of grooming and pedophilia. Like I've alluded to, they are also openly threatening and legislating against educators, clergy, and other concerned adults who provide safe spaces for kids questioning their sexuality and gender identity while living in fear of what their parents may say. They're under fire, and they're being come after with the same accusations of grooming, pedophilia, and whatnot. And those accusations are not by mistake. They tap into deep, visceral, cultural fears for our children that have fueled every moral panic over the years. From the outcry over the flapper girls of the 20s, to the fear of what Elvis's hips were doing to impressionable youth, to the satanic panic of the 80s. It's also a step on the right even closer to the modern fringe conspiracy theories of what used to be known as the alt-right, especially the alternate reality that QAnon chooses to live in. Of course, all of the available facts about reality tell us that these accusations and the panics they re represent are complete nonsense. 
just like everyone that went before them. It's garbage propaganda weaponized to whip up the right's political base, preying on their existing fears of a changing world and for their children's safety. The right has become convinced that supposedly to protect the children and protect their cultural and religious traditions, they must legislate against trans medical care for minors and drag shows that youth may be able to attend. Following the repeal of Roe v. Wade, the gates appear to be open on legislating what goes on between doctors and patients based on nothing but one's preferred beliefs about the procedures or treatments someone else is in need of. We also know that the won't someone please think of the children rhetoric is garbage. Their supposed urge to protect the children clearly doesn't include trans kids, who again have the highest rates of youth suicide because they already feel outcast and alone just for trying to be who they authentically are. Neither does that side care about keeping children safe from being massacred at school or at the mall or at the movie theater or at home by guns that were too easily acquired by those with murderous intent. But as I crept towards that issue on Sunday, the gun conversation is a whole other conversation. We know the right doesn't care about children, just like we know they don't care about life. Their pro-life nonsense is the same as their please someone think of the children nonsense. It's garbage, and it should be rejected because they're lying. And I'm not making baseless claims here. A few minutes of research easily shows the prevalence of such legislation in states across the country. The Human Rights Campaign, the country's largest LGBTQ organization, recently sounded similar alarm bells. The organization has so far tracked over 340 introduced anti-LGBTQ bills in various state legislatures this year alone, including the most anti-transgender bills ever filed. Those bills include ones that would prohibit students from playing school sports that match their gender identity, and bills that would restrict gender-affirming medical care for minors. Over 90 bills targeting medical care for trans youth have been filed so far, and Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Mississippi, South Dakota, Utah, Tennessee, and West Virginia have already signed such bills into law, while other states are moving similar bans through their legislatures. Other proposed bills direct school employees to effectively misgender students, mandating that students are referred to with pronouns that match their sex assigned at birth unless a parent intervenes, and also limiting who, what can even legally be discussed in school in terms of orientation and gender identity. Such laws have already passed in Arkansas, Idaho, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Utah, Florida, and Wyoming. This continues the right's attack on education that's been ongoing when it comes to topics of race, the teaching of history, or what books are accessible in a school library. Which, if you really think about it, makes sense, because when all available truths about reality go against your worldview, the only way to perpetuate your views are to outlaw people from learning the truths about reality. The right is so obviously aware of this, hence the embrace of tyranny to take away people's options in rejecting their false narratives or claim to power. Other states are legislating what can be put on government-issued IDs in terms of gender identity, what bathrooms people can use, seeking to outlaw drag shows, which if you pay close attention will ultimately be an excuse to launch an all-out authoritative shutdown of pride celebrations and parades. West Virginia has even eased their discrimination laws to make it easier for employers and other entities to exclude queer people. Other states are trying to do the same. Within the past three years, firsts 
and anti-LGBTQ plus bills have piled up. One analysis finds the first legislative ban on trans youth playing sports that matched their gender identity in Utah, the first ever legislative ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth happened in Arkansas, and the first state ban on the use of X as a gender marker on identity documents happened in Oklahoma. The first don't say gay law passed in 20 years in Florida, and Texas currently has over 40 bills aimed at every category we've mentioned so far and more in some stage of advancement through their own statehouse. Efforts outside state houses are even another part of what makes the current moment unique per this report, including child abuse investigations ordered by the state of Texas against families seeking gender-affirming care, and Florida's Board of Medicine moving to restrict such care for trans youth and take away the licenses of doctors who engage in it. Some LGBTQ plus advocates are concerned about the potential for new anti-trans bills to restrict whether families can seek gender-affirming care in other states if their own state bans it. In Oklahoma, one bill prohibits doctors from making a referral to any physician or healthcare professional for gender transition procedures for patients under 18. The consequences of such a referral would be meted out by the state, which would have jurisdiction over its own doctors. Hence, since any referrals would have to be for out-of-state care, it still has the potential to limit interstate travel for gender-affirming care. More bathroom bills, which aim to restrict how trans people are able to use the bathroom that matches their gender identity, are filed this year than in previous years, per the Human Rights Campaign's count. And bills targeting how trans students can participate in sports are still being introduced. In my home state of Indiana, Senate Bill 480 was recently passed and signed which prevents minors from receiving gender-affirming care. What's truly monstrous about this bill is that there was no grandfather clause for anyone currently receiving care, meaning the state of Indiana is now engaged in forced detransitions for individuals who were already progressing along the process. This is one of those instances where the cruelty must be the point because there'd be no other point for this than abject cruelty. It is evil plain and simple. State-sponsored abuse and traumatization. Every single lawmaker and voter who supported this will wind up with blood on their hands. It's on the heels of last year when Bill 1041 banning transgender girls from participating in K-12 sports survived a gubernatory veto through override to, to become law. Of this year's slate of proposals, laws make it, making it easier to sue doctors and clinics for providing medical care, laws requiring school officials to out students who indicate as LGBTQ+, to their parents, and laws that ban schools from affirming students expressed queer orientations, and even laws that ban classroom discussions of LGBT issues are all on the table in Indiana. Again, these are the obvious actions from a people who are absolutely convinced of their correctness in this debate. So convinced that the humans they are legislating against cease to become human in their eyes. The ways elected officials from Florida to Texas to Indiana are openly demonizing this community should send chills down the spine of anyone listening. Hell, just yesterday I listened to an ignorant Florida official say he feels like he's living in the X-Men, seeing mutants walking around and referred to trans people in the very room he was speaking, including children, as demons and imps. Like, what kind of piece of shit does that? And I'll tell you what kind of piece of shit does that. It's the kind of piece of shit who believes in shit beliefs, usually based on shit religion he learned from shit preachers. This is why bad theology is dangerous and has to be denounced in the strongest possible terms when encountered. That's the point of this whole show. And you know, it was pretty on the nose that he mentioned the X-Men. 
when the main villains in the X-Men are consistently asshole politicians who are trying to enact a genocide against mutants simply for their crime of existing. He stumbled into the most apt metaphor available there. He just refuses to see that he's the asshole in the metaphor. This is what's happening in America right now. We don't even have the time or space to talk about the countries around the world that are going even further, outlawing homosexuality and reinstating the death penalty for violators of such laws in countries such as Uganda. And if you don't think that that can't happen here, you better go back and look at the comments conservative talking heads are making on their podcast radio shows or even at their conventions. Look at what Webster Barnaby, the local Florida rep I just talked about, said. Look at how on stage at the most recent CPAC gathering in March, Daily Wire host Michael Nose said, For the good of society, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. And that call was met with rousing applause. All of this represents the telltale signs of the worst kind of moral panic. And the problem with moral panics is you can never quite tell where they'll end up. If you want to read more about moral panics, I highly recommend the book Folk Devils and Moral Panics by Stanley Cohen. Moral panics sometimes fizzle out. Other times, they achieve their goals of censorship of art through movie, TV, and video game rating systems and explicit content labels on music or whatever. But other times, they go much, much further. Rene Girard, who I mentioned at the start of the show, began his analysis of what happens when a panic goes to its natural conclusion by looking at an example from the distant past, the Christian persecution of Jewish people in Europe during the Great Plague of the 14th century. The Great Plague, or Black Death as it's come to be known, is estimated to have subjected nearly a third of the population to ugly, painful deaths. Understandably, Christian Europe struggled to make sense of it all. In their minds, they were Christendom, orthodox in belief and practice governed by universal popes and Christian emperors, and members of a universally triumphant kingdom of God on earth that had brought the pagan world to heal in the name of Christ, pushing back against any hint of heresy or barbarism through inquisition at home and crusade abroad. To them, surely this couldn't be punishment for their doctrine or religious practices, because they had strove to be perfect. Thus, they assumed the cause had to be something else, or someone else. Remember, we're living in a time before any knowledge of infectious disease existed, so people viewed plagues and illnesses as punishments from God. And to them, they weren't deserving of punishment, so it had to be someone else. Introspection have nev has never been the strong suit of Western peoples, obviously. So they pondered whether there might have been someone they missed in their cleansing work. Was there someone among them whose differences counterbalanced their own supposed faithfulness? And of course, a community of others did in fact exist in their midst that both did not conform to their style of worship, did not accept Christ, lived separate and different lives right down to the details of hygiene and daily work schedules, and appeared, on the surface at least, to not be as decimated by the plague as they were. We're talking here about the scattered but persistent Jewish communities throughout Europe, of course. And it's a sad fact of history that Christians seem to target Jews by default once they run out of barbarians and heretics to hate. Like a train that never fails to arrive at the station on time, Jews began to take the blame for Europe's plague in many locales. Accusations that the Jews must have poisoned the wells or cursed their Christian neighbors and thus caused the ongoing disaster took root for folks desperate for easy answers that lined up with their pre-existing worldview. The persecution of Jewish communities during the Black Death that ensued has become infamous and widely studied. For Girard, it typified how a crisis in society often leads to the need for the majority to find some other to blame for said crisis. 
Once identified, the majority will eventually commit violence against the guilty party as an attempt to alleviate the crisis. Subsequently, once the crisis is abated, persecutory events tend to be immortalized in literature, art, and religion produced by that society moving forward. Girard developed his scapegoat theory based on the stereotypical markers he found in literature and religious traditions of societies who experienced such cycles. He pointed to four specific stereotypes of persecution. 1. A social crisis that presents a perceived existential threat to the dominant social structures. 2. The majority's search for the crimes that must have been committed to cause such crises, typically crimes of moral nature involving the transgression of one or more social taboos. 3. The identification of the culprits of said crimes, who are usually already members of an outgroup long held in suspicion. And 4. The outbreak of violence against the identified targets. He details these in the book The Scapegoat, and there he lays out the progression as such. Most historical occurrences begin with a great crisis, a plague, a natural disaster, a famine, political disturbances, religious conflict, etc. That throws the established order into chaos. In a chaotic crisis, the institutions, including governments, rules, and social norms and distinctions break down and general uniformity emerges in place of the diversity of a healthy society. Everyone is suffering, scared, and confused regardless of their social status or identity. He says, quote, the persecutions in which we are interested generally take place in times of crisis, which weaken normal institutions and favor mob formations. Such spontaneous gatherings of people can exert a decisive influence on the institutions that have been so weakened and even replace them entirely. The first stereotype is then the stereotype of crisis and threat to culture that crisis presents. He refers to this as the eclipse of culture. He says, in this event, there is a felt powerlessness and a search for things to blame. At the same time, there is a resistance for anyone to blame themselves and a refusal to see their ability to impact the situation either positively or negatively. Human relations disintegrate in the process and their subjects of those relations cannot be utterly innocent in the phenomenon, but rather than blame themselves, people inevitably blame either society as a whole, which costs them nothing or other people who seem particularly harmful for easily identifiable reasons. The suspects are accused of a particular category of crimes, which leads to the second stereotype in the accusations that emerge, the kinds of crimes pointed to as the reason for the crisis. A mob forms out of their uniform sense of powerlessness against natural causes, and it insists instead on moral causes, such as these worst types of crimes. In their search to blame, they will ascribe crimes that transgress the most fundamental social taboos to the small group or individual being blamed, including violent crimes, especially against the most vulnerable in a society, particularly children in modern cultures, or crimes of an aberrant sexual nature like rape or incest, or different kinds of orientations and expressions of sexuality, and crimes against religious norms. To the crowd, these transgressions have caused the breakdown of differentiation and led to the uniformity they're experiencing, that disturbing we're all in the same boat sensation of the crisis, which removes individual agency to fight back against it. The third stereotype, the finding of the target to blame for said crimes, or the crowd's choice of victims in Girard's words, typically goes by a few sets of criteria. 
There's either ethnic and religious minorities. If this group is chosen for this reason, the subsequent behavioral or physical abnormalities are also then usually ascribed to them to further their ostracization. There's the category of physical criteria such as perceived illness, physical or mental, perceived disability, and other forms of difference, whether natural or not. And then there's the social abnormalities, such as behavioral immigration status, being poor, or being some other kind of outsider. Once outlined, Girard saw this pattern everywhere in mythology and literature, from Greek mythology to the Bible to the traditional tales of Mesoamerica. But he also saw in many stories from history, the persecution of the Jews during the Black Death, the Inquisition, various witch trials, Roman persecutions of Christians, and most of the foundational stories of ancient empires. Go read the Iliad, the Aenid, and the tales of Romulus and Remus to find how these kinds of stories sit at the foundational tales of empires. Of course, the atrocities of the Second World War and other genocidal events of the 20th century play out Girard's cycle almost as if by rote. This pattern also fits well into his foundational theory of human relationships based on mimetic desire and helped make sense of the preponderance of such stories of persecution in such a way that better understands the violent tendencies always bubbling under the surface of human society. Most societies tend to have ready-made scapegoats in their midst outsiders who have been thrust to the margins for being different in some way that doesn't conform to the dominant culture or religious norms. Once identified and blamed for a crisis, the fear of the in-group will coalesce around a perceived need to protect their way of life from further harm and re-establish their cherished norms that are being lost. The majority will begin to take on the language of victimhood, seeing themselves as the threatened party and their intended targets, however powerless they may be in actuality, as the dangerous villains threatening them. Inevitably, violence breaks out against the identified scapegoats and the crisis is either resolved or more scapegoats are sought to continue the violence until the crisis resolves itself. Such resolution, even when it's by coincidence, is attributed to the sacred violence and the cycle is embedded in the social consciousness through ritual, myth, and art, becoming a core element of the story that people tell about themselves moving forward. Like I've said, Girard's work has been influential in anthropology, philosophy, linguistics, literary analysis, and of course theology. He offers an interpretive lens to understand how we can be at our worst, and hopefully it can help us identify when we're on a trajectory bearing the stereotypes of persecution early enough in the process to confront and disarm it before the violence breaks out. In that spirit, I repeat. I believe we're in the early stages of one of Girard's cycles of persecution. A cursory reading of the world around us makes this clear. Look again at the escalating accusatory language being hurled at the LGBTQ plus community in public, especially against those who identify as transgender. Look at the real legislation and real governing bodies I cited earlier, limiting the civil rights of real people and stripping them of access to vital health care and how that's being enacted across America right now. The demonization of our brothers, sisters, and others with stereotypical charges that they're going to harm our children, that somebody must please think of the children, that they're groomers and pedophiles and whatnot is seemingly everywhere. To map our current situation onto Gerard's outline does not take much effort. 
We are a society that has seen and continues to see rapid change in every way imaginable and has endured multiple national crises just in recent memory. From the cultural change experienced through the election of the first African-American president, to the expansion of civil rights and acceptance of previously marginalized communities, to the rapid expansion of technology and social media, don't forget, basically everything about social media and the internet and our smartphones that's so normal to every second of our lives right now did not exist for the vast majority of us in 2010. And in less than a decade, they've become vital to daily life and have even affected the outcomes of presidential elections. Speaking of presidential elections, the traumatic elections of 2016 and 2020 are definitely on this list of crises. The COVID-19 pandemic and its socioeconomic disruptions of life and the ongoing effects as well as the massive loss of life associated with it that we've yet to really deal with and grieve as a people. We've got the inception of a new racial civil rights movement in response to the constant loss of life at the hands of the police under the banner of Black Lives Matter. We've got a never-ending gamut of mass shootings that we have to read about and witness in real time. And we've got the attempted overthrow of our government on January 6th and the continued legal fallout of that. And we've got the continuing struggle to hold the single most criminal and corrupt individual to ever grab power in this country accountable for any of his life of crime and his continued ongoing threat to our republic. We've got the breakdown of families along political lines. All of that is a ball of never-ending social crises. And all of that's a ball of never-ending social crises that breaks down our differentiation and, and seems to put us, quote, all in the same boat and is perceived as an existential threat. Much of this has been felt as such existential threat to the status quo of a subset of our society who used to see themselves as the unquestioned majority and standard bearers of normalcy. Subsequently, that in-group has been whipped up into a very particular political frenzy and into a near constant cycle of moral panic. Identity politics have reached an inflection point after years of this and for this particular group, the morally taboo crimes that are causing this perceived society downfall seem to be obvious because they've been conditioned to see them as such for so long. The moral decline and the turning against Christianity of modern liberalism, usually read broadly as the acceptance of reproductively independent women and the extension of civil rights to queer people, and amped up charges of pedophilia and devil worship are at this point foundational to their worldview. They have created a whole counterculture that reinforces them as the real Americans, the real Christians, the good people, etc., and convinces its adherents that they are engaged in a great struggle against those who would destroy everything they love. For this group, the prime example of said transgressions of taboo is increasingly the LGBTQ plus community. Queer people are the ready-made scapegoat for the American right in our midst as they are an outgroup among us that brings into question some of our most strongly held beliefs about our most basic identity markers of sexuality and gender. This tension, while always present, has very recently become unavoidable as queer people have gained cultural acceptance. Their very existence represents something so different from the in-group's definition of moral that queer people are seen as monstrous by many of them. The cultural acceptance of queerness has reinforced the in-group's attitude that the world is turning against them and against their deeply held beliefs. It is becoming increasingly unavoidable for them to notice the cognitive dissonance in their worldview, and thus the moment of action is speeding towards us in real time. In fact, I believe it could be argued that violence has already begun in legislative bodies because history tells us it will not end there unless an intervention takes place. 
These threats already include those of us who would defend the queer community as well. Liberals, progressives, democrats, academics, etc. who have already long been demonized by the radical right as un-American and morally deviant and dangerous and anti-Christian are being accused of complicity in the perceived threat to and imagined crimes against the children and the destruction of our nation. Accusations of pedophilia and grooming of anti-Christian beliefs and actions of hating America and a slew of other things have increased to the point that it feels like you cannot enter into a single public conversation about politics in America without seeing one or all of them appear early and often. Accusations of pedophilia especially have become a new Godwin's law, replacing Nazi as the favorite label of one's enemies. Ironically enough, we see this particularly from those who have warmed up to the policies of actual Nazism in their political philosophy and whose political party seemingly all of the Nazis in America are now part of. Increasingly, we all stand accused, from teachers who provide safe spaces for children who are questioning their orientation or identity, to legislators who stand against the policies being enacted in red state America, to celebrities, athletes, musicians, etc. who represent and defend alternative lifestyles. Even those clergy who speak up and say these actions are not founded on, or that they're even incongruent with the religions claimed by the mob are being demonized. When the mob comes, it's going to come for us all. The question here then is how do we stop this train once it's already left the station? How can we avert the coming violence against first the transgendered, then the entire queer community, and finally anyone who dares to side with them against the mob? That violence is coming is not hyperbolic. This is not a slippery slope argument, this is a reading of human history that tells us how this same story seems to end every single time. We already see violence in small outbreaks, from Pulse to Club Q to the unpublicized hate crimes that are happening more and more every day. We see it in the angry faces and venom dripping comments about trans people we find online and in real life. Hell, last week we all watched a video of Kid Rock shooting cans of beer with an assault rifle because that beer company is partnering with a trans activist. Or at least we saw him make a video where somebody else helped him shoot cans of beer because the guy clearly had no idea what he was doing with that rifle. But think about it, if someone is so mad at a beer company for even working with a trans person that they shoot their beer with a gun, what do you think that person wants to actually do to the trans person? Christians claim to worship a crucified God who identifies most with the least and the lost, the outcast and the oppressed, the poor and the forgotten. Thus, it would seem that authentic Christian faith demands we stand with those same groups against the privileged, empowered mobs every time the necessity arises. So many today deeply believe that they are Christian and that their actions are in service of God. They have been sold such a deviant form of Christianity their whole lives and radicalized against any faith that disagrees. They have been told they're only allowed to read the Bible the ways the architects and perpetuators of this heresy tell them to and to distrust any other interpretations, no matter how well-founded they are. They are drunk on a false image of God who conveniently hates everyone they hate, on intoxicating patriotism that is permissive of their most violent tendencies, and on an undercurrent of white supremacy Supremacy, whether they're aware of it or not. Can we reach through the fog of fear, misinformation, and mistrust to the hearts of those in the mob with the gospel before it's too late? I know that change is at least theoretically possible because it happened to me. I have completely changed my own mind. 
and my own beliefs and my own theology on this very issue over the past 15 years or so. The culture I was raised in was fairly standard homophobic conservative, and when I became a Christian at 15, the church I was part of was much the same. Over time, I've come to reject all of that and embrace an open and affirming view that all queer people are good, bearers of the image of God just as I am, and are accepted just as they are. It took a long time, and it's a long story, one that I'll share in next week's episode because I think it's important to put out there as proof that change is possible. And I'll be completely honest, I still don't really understand transgender fully. It's so completely foreign to my experience of life that I struggle with it, and I have a whole host of questions and concerns related to the topic, but guess what? Given the current landscape we're facing, there's no real time to have that conversation right now. People's lives are on the line, and they can't wait for me to be able to wrap my brain around their lived experience and truth. The time to act is now. My questions don't really matter right now. We can have intellectual conversations over coffee about all of that once we get through this rough, pa rough patch of history. Until then, these folks need our support, not our criticisms. Our faith in their humanity, not our nagging doubts. That goes for anyone who thinks I'm being hyperbolic in this episode too, because I'm telling you. The right is escalating towards putting folks in camps. That's the next step. They'll say it's for re-education or reorientation or whatever to combat what they call the propaganda and brainwashing the folks have experienced, but we know how this works. And we know what the step after camps is. Elimination. They've already said it and clapped for it at CPAC especially as it become bolder and more protected in their states as their state governments move to eliminate democracy and permanently enshrine the tyrannical right stranglehold on power by any means necessary and as they continue to work to destabilize the federal government through bad faith judicial ru rulings, obstructionist governance, and outright attacks on institutions. I mean, remember, the same officials in Washington who work to ensure Congress gets nothing done and talk about defunding all federal law enforcement and oversight agencies agencies often come from the very states already teetering on the edge of genocide. If you don't see it, it's only because you don't want to see it. Because you're afraid to acknowledge that you live in a country where this is happening. But here's the bad news. You live in a country where this is happening. And the queer community doesn't have time for you to get over your fears and step into reality. Just like they don't have time for me to fully wrap my brain around the concept of transgender. We have to stand up for them. Doubts and fears be damned. It's the only right thing to do in this moment. So yes, I'm living proof that change is possible, but it's also hard. A big part of the problem is theology. When you are in that world, beliefs and doctrines are of the utmost importance. Orthodoxy, or correct belief, is among the greatest necessity. Because remember, in that world, your salvation not only hinges on believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but in believing the precisely correct things about Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're wrong, if you think God loves all people who shouldn't be loved, or if you don't share about Jesus' salvation and the threat of hell with everyone good enough, you won't have salvation. You will burn in hell. That's the bedrock of that worldview. Its very foundation is one of fear. One could argue a bedrock so concrete that it expects even God to conform to it. Lately, this has made me think of how in the ancient world, people sought to curry favor with their gods by invoking the name of that deity and offering the right sacrifices to whichever one they preferred. Many scholars have talked about this as a form of magical thinking, a way to control the divine. In this mindset, if you invoke the name and offer the sacrifice correctly, the god had to do what you asked. Them's the rules. Today, fundamentalism does a very similar thing with doctrine and the idea of orthodoxy. 
They believe inflexibly that they have it right about God and believe it so firmly that I think even if God suggested otherwise to them, they'd say God was wrong or think they were talking to a false god or a demon or whatever. This is a subtle way to control God, to create a God in your own image who conveniently rejects all of the things you personally can't understand, especially when it comes to people who are different from you. This is what I see in so many discussions online from supposedly Christian pastors and thinkers. They cling to a certain orthodoxy and assume that disagreeing with their beliefs about God is the same as disagreeing with God. And I don't even think they do this on purpose. Way back in Intro to Theology, we learned the difference between embedded assumptions, those you are raised with or latch onto as you grow but never question or think through the implications of, and reflective beliefs, ones that have been weighed and measured and questioned in a variety of ways. I think the problem is we are all so reluctant to question ourselves. It's hard work to always stop and wonder if you believe something because you've weighed all the evidence and made the best choice, or if you believe something because it just fits how you already think things should be. It's hard to think about God in ways that require you to change. The natural thing to do is to keep God basically aligned with how you already feel. I would even argue it takes good teachers to lead you down the road of better ways of looking at things, because most of us usually don't get there by ourselves. We're all born with blind spots, and it takes someone different from ourselves to see our blind spots spots and for us to be able to point out theirs. That's why theology must be done in community. That's why the Bible has to be read in diverse communities. In all of this, the fundamentalist view is ultimately a way to put God in a very small box of each individual's ability to grasp a given concept. I thank God every day that God is so much bigger than that. My entire experience coming out of fundamentalism has consistently been one of joyful gain, not loss, of finding more and more about the divine, not less, of being assured that God is infinitely bigger than my tiny human brain and has infinitely broader perspective than my tiny little human life, or even the totality of human history, that we don't have to check our brains at the door or ignore basic facts about reality because they disturb our settled beliefs about God. I've come to learn that my beliefs about God and my stance of faith in God are two very different things, and one of them, the beliefs, should always be subject to change as we learn and grow. It's among the most liberative, salvific experiences of my religious life. But such fundamentalism is a tough foundation to expose the cracks in, because the fear is so deep that all of the most important things to them will be lost, including their basic tribalistic culture identifiers like family, race, preferences, community, nation of origin, etc. And even once you do expose those cracks, it can cause a worldview collapse that doesn't always end positively. How many of the nastiest, most vocal critics of religion you've met have been former fundamentalists with a chip on their shoulder, who lash out at anyone who dares to still hold any form of faith, whose scars are painfully obvious for everyone to see, and who functionally are still fundamentalists in the way they wield inflexible certainty and look down on anyone who disagrees? I empathize with that too because, yeah, the people you trusted sold you a raw deal. They convinced you things had to be a way that they didn't, and you, like me, made an ass of yourself defending those positions and treated other people terribly because you were sold such a raw deal. We were awful when we were in that place, but after changing, the challenge remains to not be awful in the same ways in our new place. I struggle with this every day, sadly. Just check the arguments I get into on social media. And I'll say this, I'm not sure arguments work best, or at least not on their own. 
Absolutely part of my own transition was realizing that the other side from which I identified had seemingly better arguments that aligned more with basic facts about reality on every single subject once I really started to look at it. But I can't sit here today and tell you that came first or that I thought myself into a new way of being purely through logic. I think meeting people and loving people who were different came first. It's awfully hard to think people you love or even look up to, people you meet who have an inspiring and beautiful faith that looks a quite a bit stronger than your own, it's hard to think they're abominations doomed to destruction. That's a rough cognitive dissonance to try to live with. One of the worst parts of our polarized world today is that it allows us to live in mental cocoons, echo chambers where only our own thoughts and identities are reflected back at us for the most part. We can construct whole lives, both online and in the real world, where we never have to fully encounter, relate to, and live with people who are different from us. Thus, we never have to love them. They're hardly even real to us, just mere caricatures in our brains, representatives of ideas we've been taught to hate and reject. How can we accept and affirm people who aren't even real to us? Which is another very dangerous thing about these laws because the more you push people with different identities from traditional norms into the shadows and force them to exist in secret, you make it impossible for others to come to know and love and thus change their minds about them. Which is probably part of the point of such legislation. These governing bodies don't want straight, white, culturally Christian kids to get to know and love people who are different from themselves and from their families because it would inevitably lead them to change their minds, to reject their families' beliefs and embrace a broader view of life and of the world. And that scares these folks so much that they want to outlaw the process. Also, if this conflict were to progress further, it's a lot easier to continue to demonize and ultimately call for the elimination of people who don't really exist to you anyways. Look at the hate we're already hearing. They already claim their enemies aren't even human. Never stop asking yourself what options suddenly come to the table for folks who you've become convinced aren't even human compared to those whose humanity and dignity you acknowledge. There are few other words I can think of for erecting legislative barriers to love than demonic, antichrist. It's a spit in the face of everything the gospel stands for. Can hearts and minds change? Yes. I'm living proof, and yes, I believe we must try. We must try to reach and, and change those who are coming after the rights and the lives of the queer community, because if we can convince them that they don't have to believe such awful things about God and about their neighbors, if we can get them to view everyone through the lens of the image of God that we all bear, then yes, there would be no need for them to do what they're doing. However, I also believe that in the meantime, we must stand in their way and derail their attempts to enact the coming genocide in any and every way we find possible. Otherwise, we too will be complicit. You can't love your neighbor while allowing someone else to harm them. We don't have the time or luxury to sit back and wait for hearts and minds to change because people are at risk right. Increasingly, I'm being moved that this is the challenge of our time, that we have to do whatever it takes to disrupt these efforts. Maybe we'll need to make an underground railroad system to subvert and circumvent any legislation being passed against our queer brothers, sisters, and others. Maybe we need to engage in mass protests that disrupt the economy and day-to-day -day workings of society. Maybe we've got to organize, speak out, and act with more relentlessness than those on the side of oppression. So many of us have lived our entire lives wondering why didn't anyone do something in Nazi Germany or in medieval Europe or any time we watch a movie or read a book set in infuriatingly unjust situations. Well, now's that time to do something. So what will you do? 
History and God and our children have their eyes on us, so we've got to get to work. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back each Sunday with a Sunday update and reflection, and I'll be back next week with part two of this conversation where I share more of my personal story related to this topic. I hope you can find something meaningful in these words of mine, and I hope we can work together to find solutions to this dire problem our society faces before it's too late. God bless y'all.